Welcome to the drop. This is an excerpt from 1984 between the protagonist, Winston Smith, and his friend, Sim. Winston and Sim pushed their trays beneath the grill. Onto each was dumped swiftly the regulation lunch, a metal pannikin of pinkish-gray stew a hunk of bread, a cube of cheese, a mug of milkless victory coffee, and one saccharine tablet. There's a table over there, under that telescreen, said Sim. Let's pick up a gin on the way. The gin was served out to them in handless china mugs. They threaded their way across the crowded room and unpacked their trays onto the metal-topped table, on one corner of which someone had left a pool of stew, a filthy liquid mess that had the appearance of vomit. Winston took up his mug of gin, paused for an instant to collect his nerve, and gulped the oily-tasting stuff down. When he had winked the tears out of his eyes, he suddenly discovered that he was hungry. He began swallowing spoonfuls of the stew, which, in and among its general sloppiness, had cubes of spongy, pinkish stuff, which was probably a preparation of meat. Neither of them spoke again until they had emptied their pannikins. From the table at Winston's left, a little behind his back, someone was talking rapidly and continuously, a harsh gabble, almost like the quacking of a duck, which pierced the general uproar of the room. How is the dictionary getting on, said Winston, raising his voice to overcome the noise. Slowly, said Sim. I'm on the adjectives. It's fascinating. He'd brightened up immediately at the mention of newspeak. He pushed his pannikin aside, took up his hunk of bread in one delicate hand and his cheese in the other, and leaned across the table so as to be able to speak without shouting. The 11th edition is the definitive edition, he said. We're getting the language into its final shape the shape it's going to have when nobody speaks anything else. When we've finished with it, people like you will have to learn it all over again. You think, I dare say, that our chief job is inventing new words, but not a bit of it. We're destroying words. Scores of them. Hundreds of them every day. We're cutting the language down to the bone. The 11th edition won't contain a single word that will become obsolete before the year 2050. He bit hungrily into his bread and swallowed a couple mouthfuls, then continued speaking with a sort of pendant's passion. His thin, dark face had become animated. His eyes had lost their mocking expression and grown almost dreamy. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Of course, the great wastage is in the verbs and adjectives, but there are hundreds of nouns that can be got rid of as well. It isn't only the synonyms, there are also antonyms. After all, what justification is there for a word which is simply the opposite of some other word? A word contains its opposition in itself. Take good, for instance. If you have a word like good, what need is there to have a word like bad? Ungood will do just as well. 
better because it's the exact opposite, which the other is not. Or again, if you want a stronger version of good, what sense is there in having a whole string of vague, useless words like excellent and splendid and all the rest of them? Plus good covers the meaning, or double plus good if you want something stronger still. Of course, we use those forms already, but in the final version of Newspeak, there'll be nothing else. In the end, the whole notion of goodness and badness will be covered by only six words. In reality, only one word. Don't you see the beauty of that, Winston? It was Beebe's idea originally, of course, he added as an afterthought. A sort of vapid eagerness fitted across Winston's face at the mention of Big Brother. Nevertheless, Sim immediately detected a certain lack of enthusiasm. You haven't a real appreciation of Newspeak, Winston, he said almost sadly. Even when you write it, you're still thinking in old speak. I've read some of those pieces that you write in the Times occasionally. They're good enough, but they're translations. In your heart, you'd prefer to stick to old speak with all its vagueness and its useless shades of meaning. You don't grasp the beauty of the destruction of words. Do you know that Newspeak is the only language in the world whose vocabulary gets smaller every year? Winston did know that, of course. He smiled, sympathetically, he hoped, not trusting himself to speak. Sim bit off another fragment of the dark-colored bread, chewed it briefly, and went on. Don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible, because there will be no words in which to express it. Every concept that can ever be needed will be expressed by exactly one word, with its meaning rigidly defined, and all its subsidiary meanings rubbed out and forgotten. Already, in the 11th edition, we're not far from that point, but the process will still be continuing long after you and I are dead. Every few years, fewer and fewer words, and the range of consciousness always a little smaller. Even now, of course, there's no reason or excuse for committing thought crime. It's merely a question of self-discipline, reality control. But in the end, there won't be any need for even that. The revolution will be complete when the language is perfect. Newspeak is in sock and Insock is Newspeak, he added with a sort of mystical satisfaction. Has it ever occurred to you, Winston, that by the year 2050, at the very least, not a single human will be alive who could understand such a conversation as we are having now? Except, began Winston doubtfully, and then stopped. It had been on the tip of his tongue to say, except the proles. But he checked himself not feeling fully certain that this remark was not in some way unorthodox. Sim, however, had divined what he was about to say. The proles are not human beings, he said carelessly. By 2050, earlier probably, all real knowledge of old speak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron. They'll exist only in new speak versions not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. 
even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. How could you have a slogan like, freedom is slavery, when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. One of these days, thought Winston, with sudden deep conviction, Sim will be vaporized. He is too intelligent. He sees too clearly and speaks too plainly. The party does not like such people. One day, he will disappear. It is written in his face. George Orwell's 1984 turns out to be predictive of 2020 in the strangest of ways. I'm sure that I read 1984 in high school, but there was no way I understood it. It it would have taken a kind of a life already lived, which I'm 55, I've lived a very long time through very different circumstances. Um, and so reading it now, especially in the post-pandemic America, um, you really start to understand why George Orwell wrote it. And the thing is, is that it's about, obviously it's about a dystopian future, um, and, and the way Orwell saw it was uh, kind of a fascist or communist regime. Um, and not really so much communist because in, in Orwell's book, there's very much an underclass that's ignored. That's the proles. Um, they're not even considered, you know, worthy of, of being indoctrinated into the world of Big Brother. They just don't even matter. Um, so it is very much in its own way about um, class and elitism. It's very sort of um, Nazi-esque, Hitler-esque. Um, but at the same time, it's also Marxist because it's, um, you know, it's, it is about being, you know, of one mind, of one state, uh, of one language that gets reduced smaller and smaller every year. Um, it's about erasing the past. The book is full of wonderful quotes that, that can be relevant today. I guess the main difference is, people would point out, is that um, in 1984, it's very much the state controlling um, people's lives. And they're watched all the time by Big Brother, who, you know, has spies, you know, children are spies, and they're always looking for people who are committing thought crimes, and among those are actually falling in love, believe it or not. And so they all live in fear, right? And at the same time, you know, they're, they're forced and they're meant to pledge their love to Big Brother, not just their allegiance, uh, their love. They're, they're forced to, um, to give themselves over completely. Uh, and I think that this is one of the best books ever written. And it isn't just because of its dystopian nature. It's also because it's so much about love, and it's the one thing about George Orwell that I didn't really know until I looked into his biography, but he was sort of plagued by the idea of love. Um, he pursued women and, you know, had his heart broken many times and, and was almost alone when he died. But he did get married on his deathbed. 
Um, it seemed to me in looking at his biography that the one thing that mattered to him more than anything else was love. Um, and that is all through 1984. Um, and that's, I think, what makes it a beautiful book and a moving one. But there's no getting around the dystopian nature of it. Probably this, the, the, the book's most memorable scene is when Winston is being forced into submission towards the end of the book to really give himself over to Big Brother. And what, what he's being forced to do is give up his love, give up um, Julia um, as he's faced with his worst fear, which is a cage of hungry rats that they're going to put his face into to be chewed off. And the fear is so palpable and so great that he, he does end up finally surrendering. But I guess the question is, at the end, does he really surrender? Um, he's, uh, I believe he's, he's assassinated at the end of the book, but, you know, I haven't read any essays on this or analysis or criticism, and I could be wrong, so don't hold me to this, because it could just be a really bad misreading of the ending. I'm just going by my own impressions of it. But it seems to me that it could be open as to whether he really was killed by them or he was just metaphorically killed, as in they took everything from him. So what else was there left, you know? If you have to give up everything to fight for your life, but you're fighting for something that is devoid of, of all meaning, you take away art, you take away literature, you take away love, you take away choice, um, you take away everything, and what do you have? Uh, and you only have your love for Big Brother. What kind of a life is that? You're really just dead. Part 2. Banning Trump won't fix what's wrong with Twitter and Facebook. The platforms themselves are the problem. After sucking up to Trump and pretending to be the information wants to be free guys, the tech bros have suddenly turned a corner on dictatorial rule. Information actually doesn't want to be free. Information must be curated to newspeak. It must adhere to strict guidelines of a newly anointed Democratic Party or else face the purge. Such was the idiotic decision by Twitter, Facebook, and a fairly sad flail of Google Play, itself a fairly sad flail of an app delivery service, to try to purge Trump world from their spaces. They're inciting violence. Trump has the nuclear codes. What happened at the Capitol was unforgivable, terrifying, and just plain stupid. After all, there were plenty of people making Trump's case in the legal way in the same building that was mobbed. How dumb do you have to be? It was straight out of central casting, by the way. If you want to find a group of people most exemplary of what the left thinks about Trump supporters, those were the kind of people caught on camera. One carried a Confederate flag. All of them had the look of crazy in their eye. Missing in the reports, of course, was at least one Black Lives Matter protester who was black, but that was never going to make the news. No, this was its own kind of Reichstag fire, not orchestrated by the left, but will certainly scare enough people that they will allow for authoritarian measures to take place across the board. Twitter made Trump, and now they don't like that their monster is roaming the quiet countryside. He boosted their profile, drove their traffic way up to coincide with their algorithm shift in 2017, making them worthy competitors to Facebook where they had always been lagging way behind. Trump was Twitter. 
He was the focus of the left and the right, day in and day out. On the right, they were split in how they viewed Trump, with a cabal of conservatives joining the Democrats in waging war against the guy they vowed never to support. And the others were all in on Trump, noticing that, despite the nonstop attacks by the left, a good majority of Americans not only still liked him, but were counting on him to fight the rising extremism on the left, since he was the only one who had the courage to do it. On the left, losing power after eight years of Obama and to lose it to Trump was the worst thing that ever happened. Trump was a threat, not because he was dangerous, but because he was offensive in every way. Not just in how he looked, what he ate, how he dressed, his hair, but also that he mocked the disabled, called women fat and black citizens thugs and protesters animals. Trump was Archie Bunker entering the brave new world. He was the devil coming to Salem. It has been nonstop fear, panic, and hysteria ever since. It was not only easy to dehumanize Trump, it turned into a blood sport. Just how bad could it get on a given day? Nothing was off limits, including sex with his own daughter. Trump had mocked so many others, so it was fair game, never mind actual decency. I'm guessing that most Americans still view this as a free country and are not going to take this sudden shift towards authoritarianism lightly. I'm guessing this will play badly for the Democrats in the long game. Isn't this what they do in China when they don't like what people are saying? But insurrection and violence is in the eye of the beholder. Even though many more died during the months-long protests, even some during the autonomous zone disaster in Seattle, the fascist dictator they warned about never showed up. Trump had every opportunity to break with the Constitution, but he never did. He could have prosecuted threats to his life made on Twitter. He could have shut down the autonomous zone and sent in federal troops to all the cities protesting. He followed the Constitution always. Trump's biggest problem was that he played a fascist on Twitter. The platforms themselves are eroding decency and democracy. Trump had a Twitter addiction. It takes one needy narcissist to know one. I could see how there was a different Trump on Twitter than in real life, just as there was and is a different me on Twitter than in real life. We aren't the only ones. I've noticed many people showing up differently on Twitter, their vicious sides coming out, their most cruel, their most dehumanizing, and all the while sending you one dopamine hit after another. The more popular you become, the more followers you have, the more prominent you are, the more likes you get, and the more hooked you become. You can see those who are addicted to the virtue signaling engagement. They tweet out things they know people will love, and you can see those who are addicted to cruelty. They're the most common users. That was Trump, a troll through and through, drunk on power and able to send Twitter users into a frenzy with just one tweet. Trump was also a virtue signaler. He was clearly addicted to the instant feedback Twitter provided. For a guy who was not up to the job in the first place and in need of constant focus and attention, he could use Twitter to troll the libs, but also to see if his hundreds of thousands of followers still loved him and supported him. There is no doubt Trump's rhetoric was leading to delusional thinking among his supporters. He was lying to them about the election. They believed him. Steve Bannon's podcast is ground zero, or was, for the Stop the Steal movement. 
Bannon believes we are headed for some kind of war between the little guys and the oligarchs. They're adamant that the election was stolen. None of this, needless to say, has ever happened in American history. But we've never had Facebook or Twitter before either. And they are just as responsible for what's happening now as Trump is, maybe even more so. After all, Trump without Twitter might have been a halfway decent president. They knew what they were doing when they built Twitter and Facebook. They could see how it eroded our empathy. They could see how it distorted the truth easily and moved so fast it couldn't be fact-checked. They watched it all and did nothing. They left Trump alone while he was the president and could have regulated them. On his way out, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, cosplaying actual caring adults, banned Trump and started kissing up to the Democrats in hopes they didn't regulate them. Twitter knew, Facebook knew, they knew. Here's an excerpt from Jaron Lanier's 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. The core process that allows social media to make money and that also does a damage to society is behavior modification. Behavior modification entails methodical techniques that change behavioral patterns in animals and people. It can be used to treat addictions, but it can also be used to create them. The damage to society comes because addiction makes people crazy. The addict gradually loses touch with the real world and real people. When many people are addicted to manipulative schemes, the world gets dark and crazy. Addiction is a neurological process that we don't understand completely. The neurotransmitter dopamine plays a role in pleasure and is thought to be central to the mechanism of behavior change in response to getting rewards. Behavior modification, especially the modern kind implemented with gadgets like smartphones, is a statistical effect. It means it's real, but not comprehensively reliable. Over a population, the effect is more or less predictable, but for each individual, it's impossible to say. To a degree, you're an animal in a behaviorist experimental cage, but the fact that something is fuzzy or approximate does not make it unreal. And they don't care. They don't care what they're doing to our brains. They don't care what they're doing to our country. They don't care what they're doing to our kids. They don't care about the power we've willingly handed over to them. They don't care because they are moving fast and breaking things, and look at them now. Here is another quote from Lanier. People often get weird and nasty online. This bizarre phenomenon surprised everyone in the early days of networking, and it has had a profound effect on our world. While not every online experience is nasty, the familiar nastiness colors and bounds the overall online experience. Nastiness has also turned out to be like crude oil for the social media companies and other behavior manipulation empires that quickly came to dominate the internet because it fueled negative behavioral feedback. The day Floyd was killed, a picture was passed around on Twitter at a rapid fire pace. It depicted a cop who kneeled on Floyd's neck wearing a red hat that said, make America white again. The thing was, it was fake. It was put into circulation to whip people up into a frenzy and yes, to incite violence. It doesn't matter who posted it. Banning them would not fix the problem because the problem is in the machine. It's in the nature of Twitter and it will not stop. Removing Trump doesn't undo anything to erode his support because Americans can watch Fox News. In fact, more will turn to outlets like Fox and who knows, maybe the new platform Parler.
They can listen to podcasts. They can still read books. Although you know books are next on the chopping block. Information wants to be free. This move makes the left look bad. It makes Democrats look bad. It makes them seem like authoritarians Trump has been warning about. And the hard truth of it is, without Trump, I'm not even sure Twitter will be that much of a draw for people whose entire days revolved around attacking Trump. The Daily Purge on Twitter is a reminder of just how vulnerable we are to mob mentality and public stonings. Twitter gets hungry and Twitter must be fed. They prefer to ruin someone's life and hold them accountable or haul them out into the public square and shame them into oblivion. Twitter is ground zero for cancel culture, which would not exist without Twitter. It's a game played by 15% of the users who dominate 80% of the conversation, and they will throw temper tantrum after temper tantrum until they get their way. Twitter has destroyed objectivity in the press, forced journalists and mainstream media to suck at the teat nonstop for instant feedback. Who are they if Twitter doesn't share their stuff? No journalist or website owner can survive unless they're plugged into Twitter to share links. If you try to deactivate your Facebook account, you will find that most websites have your Facebook login info encouraging you to opt in. They're tracking you all of the time. Instagram knows how you feel at a certain time of day so it can target you best to buy stuff. It is distorting how young people define themselves, how they see themselves, what reality even means. Someday in the not-too-distant future, Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, they're all going to face massive class-action lawsuits for the damage they've done to public health. Who knows where we'll be by then, or where we'll be if all of us don't find a way out of the algorithm-driven platforms and back towards real life. Empathy, not dehumanization, is always the answer. Always. Unlike my friends on the left, I understand the frustration and anger of Trump supporters because I've spent time in their world. Long story short, I saw that the left had slipped all too easily into dehumanization mode, and there was no bottom for that. It sent a chill down my spine remembering other times in history when dehumanization gripped a large group of people. Nothing good ever comes from it. Add to that the problem of unprecedented bias in the media in the Trump era, where they are just simply decided to stop telling people any kind of truth and simply joined with the Democrats in pushing Trump out from day one. The riot at the Capitol was a horrific thing to watch. There's no getting around it. There is a difference between an uprising about black lives dying at the hands of cops and an election they thought they lost. What the uprising or insurrection or riot was really about, though, wasn't the election at all. For the most part, Trump supporters prided themselves in being nonviolent. You would never hear this from the media, of course. How would you know that? Most people were sold on the idea that they were white supremacists or proud boys out to kill BIPOC. But the supporters who went to his rallies condemned riots and violence, believe it or not. That was likely why the police weren't out in force. They were normally on the side of cops. They were the ones defending and fighting against defund the police. So it's unusual and out of character that they would storm the Capitol the way they did. All of Americans who were terrified by what they saw the first night of the George Floyd protests, where it looked like people were trying to break into the White House and were smashing cars and breaking windows and burning buildings, did not have the same outrage from the media establishment that we're seeing now. The Tom Cotton op-ed at the New York Times was meant to address it. 
We all know how that went. It sent the media into full-blown 1984 mode, where editors were fired for daring to step out of line. That would go on for months, with no one on the left saying one single word about it, except to offer empathy and launch a massive wave of activism called anti-racism. The Trump folks, frustrated in their misery of having no outlet and no politician to even see them at all, and when they did see them compared them to rats or cockroaches to be purged, had few places to turn except Twitter. There was never an ounce of empathy for their having watched four years of the Democrats and the media that supports them attack Trump on everything from what Melania wore to how she decorated the Christmas tree or whether or not she was a sociopath. Melania was the first lady, but no magazine would put her on the cover. Why? Because no one could afford to alienate their paying audience by normalizing the Trumps, who were deemed white supremacists early on. So it's a bit shocking to all that Trump managed to gain support among black and Hispanic voters. It's only a shock to those who never bothered to ask why that might be. Now Trump's supporters have no access to the candidate they supported and the only person in Washington who sees them at all. Civil war or domestic terrorism? Now it looks like we're headed for something even bigger, because the only way Trump had to communicate with his followers was Twitter and Facebook and email is gone. So we'll all go underground and become much more extreme. As usual, the only response Democrats have is to throw them all away like human garbage. Or put them in re-education camps. He's still the President of the United States, and the people who elected him have a right to be able to hear what he has to say. If the president is using social media, then it must somehow be regulated that the people have fair access to their leaders. We can't leave it in the hands of the tech bros, who now rest on their billions without a care for the little people they've ruined, the country they've destroyed, and the minds they've wrecked for the foreseeable future. No, for the tech bros, they moved fast and broke things, and they're ready to take their place among the oligarchs. That was my piece for Substack Magazine, my grand declaration, my statement, my testament. Take it for what it is, which is just the rantings of somebody whose mind really never stops, honestly. I think they have a name for that, but let's just not go there. <laughs>